Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. Uh, this is the first session in a whole new series that we are starting in the book of Acts. We're going to go right through 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And if you are just joining us for the very first time, I like to mention this, uh, there are several different ways that you can participate in these Wednesday night Bible studies. We encourage you, if possible, to join us live on the telephone. You can phone in, and it's a conference phone call. Uh, there are also several other ways. By the way, if you do wish to do that by phone, the dial-in number is 712-432-1500, and then you will be asked for an access code, which is 482084-POUND, and that way you can join in with the live call. We also do this live on the Internet at MixLR.com, M-I-X-L-R, Dot com, and the broadcast name is, of course, New Life Ministries, and that can also be done live on the internet or on your smartphone. If you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you can't physically make it on Wednesday nights at 7:30, uh, usually by the next day, the recording of that session is available several different ways. Uh, one, you can go to our church website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and both the notes and the messages are available there. Uh, or you can also access the recorded message at a later date through mixlr.com, and again, going to the New Life Ministries uh, broadcaster name. Actually, the best way of all, if you have uh, a smartphone and you know how to set it up, is to subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast. And it's very nice because you don't have to do anything. Literally, uh, for instance, the notes for part one of this study were automatically delivered to my phone um, Pastor David Slentz takes care of all of that, and it's just so nice to be able to get the notes and each recording automatically delivered to your phone. So you just simply go to the podcast uh, setting in your smartphone and look up New Life Ministries and just ask to subscribe to those podcasts, and you will get all of that sent right to your smartphone. In any event, here we are beginning a brand new series, and I've got to tell you, I have been buried in the book of Acts for some weeks now, and in my own personal preparation, I've only gotten as far as chapter 9, but I want to tell you, I'm on fire. This book has stirred me up so much, I can't even begin to explain to you, and I'm really looking forward to these studies that we're going to be doing. And I think uh, if you really study along with us, you're going to be blessed, as I certainly have already, 
going into this portion of Scripture. Again, we're studying the book of Acts. You have the four Gospels that begin the New Testament writings, and then right after the four Gospels comes the book of Acts. And then after that, you begin with the epistles of Paul and the other apostles. Depending on your Bible translation, uh, the book of Acts has traditionally been referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, although it simply is the Acts. And you could argue a case for any number of other titles. It could be the Acts of Jesus, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Church, and so forth. Uh, it gets its name from the very first verse in the book where it talks about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that he began to do and to teach. So it's a chronology, it's a very detailed historical account of the first 30 years of early church history. And these are real events, real things that happened. And as you read the stories and the testimonies that are contained in the book of Acts, they have to stir you up. They have to inspire you. And they have to challenge you. And here's something very, very sad that I want to mention at the very top here. Many... Christian denominations, and I'm not going to mention them, but some of them are mainline, big Christian denominations that are in the world today, they do not believe that the book of Acts is for today. They teach in their seminaries, and their Bible colleges, and from their pulpits, that the book of Acts was just a transitional book to kind of hold us off until the apostles finished the rest of the New Testament. And once the apostles wrote the rest of the New Testament and they died, now we have no more apostles, we have no more miracles, and we really don't need the book of Acts anymore. You know, all I can say is if there are no more apostles, if there are no more miracles, and there's no more book of Acts, I quit. Really, I, I quit. Forget about Christianity. It's impossible if you have no apostles, you have no miracles, and you have no book of Acts. We are trying to win the world to Christ, and we're helpless and hopeless without the things that are spoken of in the book of Acts. And I, for one, want to be very emphatic about this. The book of Acts is for today. Apostles are more needed today than they've ever been needed. The power of God that's talked about often in the book of Acts, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in the book of Acts, we need them more than ever if we're going to reach this lost and dying world that's in such gross darkness and confusion now, however are we going to meet them without the power of God and the miracles that we're going to learn about in the book of Acts. So, the book of Acts is for today. You and I, hopefully, 
are helping to write chapters 29, 30, 31, 32, and so forth. I don't mean that literally, but we also have our stories, living testimonies of the acts of Jesus that he began while he was here on earth, but he's continuing those acts. He's continuing those works to this very day. And by the way, there is a very well-known ministry called Acts 29. The idea being, God isn't done writing the book of Acts yet. God isn't done healing, casting out demons, founding churches, doing mighty signs and wonders and miracles. So, be encouraged, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. I want to read the opening eight verses in Acts chapter 1, and that will hopefully get us going here in our opening session. Acts 1, from verse 1 to 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you may have recognized the name Theophilus in the very first verse. It's used in the Gospel of Luke in the introduction there. The name actually means a lover of God. Some have posited that it's just a fake name, kind of a symbolic name for all God lovers. But most Bible scholars think this was a guy's real name. Um, not a bad name to give to your son, a God lover, Theophilus. And that opening address to Theophilus is one of the major clues, it's not the only one, but it's one of the major clues to the writer of the book of Acts. And again, most Bible scholars agree the author of Acts is Luke, the writer of the 
Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel. Although Luke's name is never mentioned in the book of Acts, there are a number of compelling proofs or evidences that he is the author. The opening address is one of them, a very similar style in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and some other details that we'll touch on as we get to them, that strongly suggest Luke is the author. And the book of Acts actually begins right where the Gospel of Luke ends in chapter 24. And it's almost like a continuation of Luke's Gospel. And just listen to the similarities in the way Luke begins his Gospel. Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And again, Acts 1 begins in verse 1, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the reference to a former book being written, as well as the same address to Theophilus, um, are strong evidences that indeed Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. That's important, it's not critical for our study of the book of Acts, but I think it makes it all the more interesting to see it as a continuation of Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, and also to understand something about the author. We'll see in just a minute that Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. And it's mentioned in the opening to the Gospel here that we just read that he carefully investigated everything and then he wrote an orderly account. He carefully investigated and wrote an orderly account. And that's exactly what you will find in the Gospel of Luke. That's what we're going to find in the book of Acts. Any physician, of course, would be giving very careful attention to details, investigating everything, and writing down an orderly account. So we have in the book of Acts a very beautiful, detailed account of, as I mentioned, the first 30 years of church history. And we will see that Luke gave very careful attention to details. Not only did he investigate all of the events that he writes about in the book of Acts, 
but we will also learn he was an eyewitness in certain sections of what he writes about. In other words, he was there with these apostles. He was witnessing the events that he was chronicling for us in the book of Acts. Notice the similarities between where Luke 24 ends and where Acts 1 begins. For instance, Luke 24 is after the resurrection of Jesus. It documents some of his visits with the apostles. After his resurrection, it documents his ascension back up into heaven, and even his instructions to the apostles to wait in Jerusalem until they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly where we begin in Acts 1. The resurrected Christ spending 40 days with the apostles, giving them many proofs about his resurrection, teaching them more about the kingdom of God, urging them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, in verse 11, he ascends back up to heaven. Note the continuation, almost, between Luke 24 and Acts 1. Acts 24, I'm sorry, Luke 24, 49, reads as follows. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.4 On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 begins with these words, again, Acts 1.1, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. Not what he finished, what he began to do and to teach. So Luke's gospel is just the beginning of the story. Interesting that um, Luke understood, even as he was writing the gospel, that there would probably be a volume two. So he now refers to volume one, the gospel, In that former book, I wrote about what Jesus started, what he began to do and to teach. He continues teaching in Acts 1, 40 days while he's with the apostles, and I would strongly maintain, as he's ascending back to the Father, he's still not done He's going to continue to do and to teach now through the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, given to these apostles and the rest of the church, and the apostles together with the rest of the church will continue to do and teach what Jesus began, what Jesus started. 
we do find in Colossians 4, verse 14, Paul refers to Luke as the doctor or the physician, and he also calls him a dear friend. And we will see in a, in a minute sections of Acts where Luke was actually on some of Paul's missionary journeys. He traveled with him. He was a companion with Paul. And so no surprise here that Paul considered him a dear friend. Colossians 4, verse 14. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, King James calls him the physician, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Another evidence that both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same author, Luke, uh, if you look carefully at the vocabulary that he uses, the careful attention to detail, the, the very in-depth investigation, as well as eyewitness accounts of all the events he writes about, that would be in line with the training and the practice of a physician. Careful investigation, attention to detail. And there are actually some instances in Acts where certain Greek words are used that are found nowhere else in the New Testament. And these are more medical terms, which would again be in harmony with the fact that a physician wrote the book. Uh, for instance, in Acts 28, verse 6, the writer of Acts uses a Greek medical term that literally means to swell up. It's a word found nowhere else in the New Testament, and it literally means inflammation. Well, only a doctor would really understand the, the meaning of inflammation. And so, that along with all the other things we've mentioned, point very strongly to Luke being the author of Acts. For me personally, that's important because I can trust all of the details that are mentioned in the book of Acts. Of course it's the inspired word of God, but even beyond that, we can trust that the details that are recorded for us were very carefully investigated and documented. And as I mentioned, we'll come to different sections in the book of Acts where the writer changes from they or he to the pronoun we. We went here. We did this. We saw that. Indicating that in those particular parts of the story, Luke was physically present as an eyewitness. For instance, you'll find that in Acts 16, again in Acts 20, uh, you'll find it in Acts chapter 27, and so forth. 
So there will be sections that we come to, and we'll point this out when we get to them, where the person doing the writing, it changes from they or he to we. And as we already learned, Luke was a dear friend of Paul's, which is again in keeping with the fact that he accompanied Paul on some of these major outreaches, these missionary trips that Paul would have been taking. Another important detail is when was the book of Acts written? Most historians date the writing of the book somewhere between A.D. 63 and A.D. 70. Why does that matter? Well, it is history. And we, we learned a lot about this last year when we did a long series in this Bible study on reasons to believe. We don't just blindly believe in Jesus, blindly believe in the Bible. There is a mountain of historical evidence outside of the 66 books of the Bible that confirm those 66 books. Jesus is a historical figure. The church has been well documented from the day of its birth. And some of these dates are extremely important. Um, By the way, the, the atheists hate this, but our whole calendar is based on Jesus. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Well, who's our Lord? It's Jesus. Jesus, historically known, he died A.D. 33, 33 years after his birth, in the 33rd year of our Lord. So, from A.D. 33 to A.D. 63, is what we're going to be looking at in the book of Acts, 30 years. So somewhere between A.D. 63 and A.D. 70, seven seven years later, is when most historians believe this book was completed. The reason for the A.D. 70 cutoff, that's another very important date in history. That's the year that Titus of Rome invaded Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. So it's pretty clear that all of these writings would have taken place before that event. The book of Acts ends in chapter 28 with Paul under house arrest in Rome. He spent two years under house arrest in Rome, and it's logical that Luke would have mentioned something about Paul's death, Peter's death, and the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. None of those are mentioned in the book of Acts. So it seems that the book ended before any of those major events took place. The martyrdom of both Paul and Peter are dated somewhere around A.D. 67 
And as I mentioned, it's known, you can look this up in any history book, that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So we have a pretty good window here on when the book of Acts was written, and it had to be at least A.D. 63, because of the final chapter, which puts Paul in Rome under house arrest. So we know that we have a good 30-year chunk of church history that we're going to be learning about in the book of Acts. I've listed here in our notes some of the major themes in the book of Acts and what is pretty obviously the purpose for Luke writing this second volume of what Jesus began to do and teach. Number one, it mentions frequently the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, Luke's Gospel ends with the resurrection. We already know from Luke's Gospel that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's a theme that's repeated over and over in the book of Acts. It's the central story of Christianity. Jesus died, he was buried, but he's risen from the dead. Paul says if he's not risen, then our faith is in vain. We have no hope. Our sins haven't been forgiven. Forget about having a church or anything else if Jesus isn't risen. So it's mentioned repeatedly in the book of Acts. Second major theme starts right off in chapter 1, as does the resurrection, It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Preparing for and receiving the Holy Spirit and then watching the Holy Spirit go to work. Jesus often spoke when he was on earth about the coming counselor and what he would do once he came. But now we're going to see firsthand what happens when the Holy Spirit comes both in an individual's life and on a group of believers. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, and this is major, major, major theme in the book of Acts, we are going to see the birth, the growth, and the triumph of this thing called the church. And we're going to see it in the face of great opposition and persecution. We'll see Christians imprisoned, beaten, put to death, and constant pressure on them to shut up and stop talking about Jesus. But right through the book of Acts, we see that church growing getting stronger, spreading and expanding, and triumphing in the face of all kinds of persecution. A fourth major theme, and if you're not a Jew, I'm not, but I've tried to really research this and understand the mind of a first century Jew and what a major shift was taking place 
in this season of God dealing with his people. The Jews, for centuries, had been the centerpiece of God's work. They were God's chosen people. All that is about to change now with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God is going to include Gentiles in his program. We enter into a whole new dispensation, the new covenant of grace, or the church age, where Jew and Gentile become one in Jesus Christ. The middle wall of partition, the barrier that had existed for centuries between the Jews and all the other nations, is about to be torn down, and they're all to become one people in Christ. And this is a very important theme, and I'm not criticizing anybody, but I'm quite familiar with the Messianic Jewish movement. And it's beautiful. Whenever a Jewish person comes to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, but we have to be very careful to understand what is very clearly demonstrated in the book of Acts, and they struggled with this. It took them a number of years to really be able to wrap their hearts and minds around what God was doing. He was now tearing down every wall between Jew and Gentile and making them one in Christ. Some to this day want to keep erecting that wall and keep Jew and Gentile separate. Now, that's not to say God isn't finished yet with Israel and with the Jewish people. He's not. He still has more to do. But in this age, in the, the new covenant of grace, in the dispensation of the church age, what we learn in the book of Acts is very clear. God was now breaking down that division, that barrier. He was going to baptize Jews in the Holy Spirit. He was going to baptize Gentiles in the Holy Spirit. And he was going to unite them as one body. God is not sending his son for a Jewish church one day. And then later on in the day or the next day, Jesus comes back for a Gentile church. That's foolishness. Jesus is coming for one bride. He's coming for one church. And it's made up both of Jews and Gentiles who have one thing in common. Jesus is their Messiah. They have taken baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's important to keep reminding ourselves the opening chapters of the book of Acts were dealing with a Jewish church in Jerusalem. This all started in Jerusalem. It all starts with the Jews. God is very clear in his word. Salvation is first for the Jews then for the Gentiles. But, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the book of Acts, basically the first nine chapters are dealing exclusively with Jews, 
in Jerusalem and then slowly moving out in the neighboring areas of Judea and Samaria. But it's not until Acts 10 that the gospel is even taken to the Gentiles. So this is a major theme in the book of Acts. And when we come to chapter 15, we will see that they really struggled with this. They had to call a major church council in Jerusalem. They gathered all the apostles, all the elders, and the whole church came together for a council to try to address this whole question of what to do with Jews and Gentiles who are now getting saved. Do we have to make them follow all the same customs that the Jews have followed for centuries, or where are we going with this? So it was not an easy thing for them them to embrace this. And again, I'm not a Jew, you're probably not, but for thousands of years the Jews had heard this day in, day out, year in, year out. We are God's chosen people. You have the Jews, God's people, and then you have the goyim. Goyim is the word that's translated Gentiles. It really simply means nations. So you had Israel and the nations. If you wanted to come under God's blessing under the Old Covenant, you had to convert to Judaism. And we'll see in the next chapter of Acts, there were many converts to Judaism under the Old Covenant. No need to do that anymore. We need to convert to Christ, and in Christ, Jew and Gentile become one. Now, a fifth major theme, and I've pointed this out, Acts is indeed like a bridge between the four Gospels and the epistles of the Apostles in the New Testament. But unlike many mainline denominations, God never said, uh, he was doing away with the book of Acts and we no longer need to study study it. It is a transition from the Gospels into the Epistles, but it gives us invaluable insight into the life and ministry of Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, and other Apostles who also wrote Epistles in the New Testament. It gives us a very good historical framework so that when we start to read the epistles, we understand, oh, the Romans, that's right, the Corinthians, oh, the the Thessalonians. Let me go to chapter 17 and see what happened when Paul went to Thessalonica. So it's a very important book to understand what happened after the Gospels, and to be able to understand what the apostles are writing about in the epistles, and then lastly, when we come to the book of Revelation, what the apostle John is talking about when he ends the New Testament, um, writing to these different churches that existed at that time, and God's end-time program. Now, There are several ways to formulate an outline for the book of Acts. 
one way that you can subdivide the book of Acts, it's done for us in Acts 1, and we just read the verse, Acts 1.8. It gives a geographical outline as well as a timeline for the entire book of Acts. Jesus said there, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem comprises the first seven chapters of Acts. So the first part of the outline would be Acts chapters 1 through 7, being witnesses in Jerusalem. The second major subdivision would be chapters 8 and 9, when the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The third major subdivision would be the rest of Acts, from 10 to 28, the ends of the earth. You have to understand, when we're talking about the ends of the earth, it's the ends of the known world for them in the first century. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 2, but it wasn't the entire world as we know it. But certainly, in Acts 10 to 28, we will see the gospel going to Caesarea, Antioch, Asia Minor, Africa, Greece, and Rome. So, one way of dividing it up is based on Acts 1-8. Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 and 9. And the ends of the earth chapters 10 through 28. There's another way to subdivide the book of Acts into two main sections, and either one of these is is correct. It's not that one's right and one is wrong. It just depends on how you want to break down the book into smaller, more bite-sized portions. A second way of subdividing the book of Acts is looking at Peter's ministry and then looking at Paul's ministry. Peter's apostolic ministry centers mainly in the Holy Land, although he is the apostle that first takes the gospel to the Gentiles in Caesarea, not very far from uh, Jerusalem, but Peter's apostolic ministry comprises chapters 1 through 12 of Acts. And Paul's apostolic ministry is primarily to the Gentile world. Although he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was a Jew of all Jews, God chose him primarily to deliver the gospel to the Gentile world. So Acts 13 through 28 center primarily around Paul's apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. So we have Peter's ministry in the Holy Land, chapters 1 through 12, Paul's ministry to the Gentile world, chapters 13 to 28. And of course, 
there's always going to be a little bit of overlap. That doesn't mean Paul never went back to Jerusalem or the Holy Land, but the main emphasis in chapters 13 to 28 is on his ministry to the Gentile world. If you're following along in the notes, on page 4, I've listed some of the goals of this study. And this is very important. And maybe I can just take a minute to speak more from my heart here tonight as as a teacher. You know, why do we teach these things? Is it just to fill your heads with some more knowledge, fill up your notebook with some more pages of notes? Well, hopefully you will gain some more knowledge, and I strongly encourage you to have a notebook. Keep all the notes from all of these Bible studies. Go back and study over the notes. You can't get it all in one sitting just listening on the telephone or listening to your smartphone. You need to go back and look up these verses, study them, memorize the ones that really touch your heart, and dig in to the Word of God. So, one of my goals is more on that line, on that surface. It's to learn facts and details, to learn the history of the early church, but so that we can gain an understanding of the principles that should be guiding the formation and the governing of the church today. Let let me go through that again. I don't want you to miss this. If all we do in these next weeks is fill our heads with knowledge, wow, I know a lot more now about the book of Acts, I have failed, and to be honest with you, I've probably wasted my time. That's not where I want this to end. I want every one of us to come to a new level of understanding about the church. What is the church? What are the principles involved in the formation of the church? There is so much confusion in the world today, so many things coming down the pike that are called church that are not. And we'll be able to discern the difference as we go through the book of Acts and see what a real church looks like. How does a real church start? What principles are involved in the formation of a real church? How do we run the church? Do we vote? Do we have elections? Do we hire some company to come in and help us to grow our church? How do we govern this thing called the church? Well, I prefer to learn those things from the book of Acts and then from the epistles that come thereafter, but especially in the book of Acts, we get a hands-on demonstration. Here's what a church looks like. Here's how a church starts. Here's how they ran the church in the early days. And, again, I don't want to get off tonight, but I'm sure we'll 
be talking about this in coming sessions. There are so many crazy, weird things going on in the world today that have nothing to do with the Word of God. I don't want anything to do with any of that stuff. I want to come back to, God, how does the church really form? How is the real church supposed to be governed? And there are a lot of strange things going on in churches today. I'm not trying to be critical, but if you know the Word of God, you'll be able to pick these things out and say, hmm, that's not how they did it in Paul's day. That's not how they did it in Peter's day. So we want to not only learn the history of the early church, but go beyond that and really begin to understand the principles behind the formation and the running of the church for us today. Second point, I touched on this earlier, Jesus spoke about the counselor that he was going to send. But in the book of Acts, we're going to understand the working of the Holy Spirit in the church. Put a huge star next to that one. This is one of the major goals of our study in the book of Acts. We want to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. We want to be able to discern spirits, both the Holy Spirit and wrong spirits that try to creep in. We want to be able to say, hmm, that doesn't seem like the Holy Spirit. That seems like some other strange spirit trying to creep into our church. We want to be able to recognize the Holy Spirit. What does He come to do? He comes to bring conviction of sin, righteousness and judgment. He comes to glorify Jesus, and so forth. So, we want to develop an understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church today. Thirdly, as we study the book of Acts, it's so that you and I can receive fresh power and boldness through the Holy Spirit. This is going to change you. I want it to change me. It should stir us up to get off our couch, get off our butt, get filled with the Holy Spirit, get filled with holy boldness, and move out as witnesses for Christ. And again, this isn't just to fill our heads with knowledge, it's to fill us with power and boldness through the Holy Spirit so that we can be effective in doing the work God called us to do. A fourth goal, this relates a little bit to what I was talking about under goal number one, but I want to separate it out again and emphasize it. As we study the book of Acts, we are going to see what a real church looks like and what it doesn't look like. There's a lot of stuff that churches in the modern era have adopted that you're going to be amazed don't even show up in the book of Acts. We treat these things as so sacred, they're not even in the Bible. 
They're traditions of men. So we want to kind of reboot the computer, maybe even reformat the hard drive, and start all over again and ask some very probing questions. What does a real church look like? How does a real church function? And are there things that I have embraced, or maybe inherited would be a better word, that quite frankly aren't even in the book of Acts? I'll hit you with one, and I don't want to step any toe on any toes tonight, but if I do, so be it. Well, pastor... If you're going to have a church, you have to have a building program. A multi-million dollar building project, right? Every church has a building program. Show me in the book of Acts. I'll give you homework. Go through all 28 chapters. You won't find any mention of a building program. Them saving up money to build a big temple with stained glass windows and fancy carpet and stage and lights and and musical equipment. No mention in the book of Acts. They didn't have fancy buildings. They weren't worried about buildings. They might get persecuted and chased off to another town next week. So why waste our time on a building project? They were more concerned about staying filled with the Holy Spirit, casting out demons, and laying hands on the sick. That's what a real church is all about. And you know, I used to feel kind of shy when I'd be around other pastors and they'd all be boasting and bragging, oh yeah, we're breaking ground this fall on our $4.5 million building expansion. Well, God bless you, brother, that's wonderful. How about you? What kind of building plans do you have at New Life? None. Oh, really? No. We're just pilgrims and strangers. We go from place to place. We used to be in Bethesda. Now we're back in Silver Spring. I don't know where we'll be next year, but God will provide for us. We're not really interested in carpets and buildings. We want to see souls saved. We want to get back to the roots of real Christianity. So this is a biggie. Goal number four is for us to see what a real church looks like and stop worrying about all the stuff that isn't even in the book of Acts. Now, this may not apply to a lot of us, but show me a pipe organ in the book of Acts. They didn't have one. (laughs) Show me the preachers, the apostles, the leaders of the church wearing some kind of special gown or suit so that they could preach. It's not in the book of Acts. And we treat all these things as sacred, but they're not. The things in the book of Acts are sacred. Fasting and prayer, oh, we're going to find that in the book of Acts. Casting out demons, laying hands on the sick, ordaining elders and deacons, oh, that's in the book of Acts. Persecution, oh, we'll find that in the book of Acts. Those are sacred things that make up a real church. Point number five, a goal that I have for us doing this study together in the book of Acts. 
It's already worked on me. It's to be challenged and motivated. In other words, to stir you up so that you have a new boldness, a new fire in you to go out and to spread the gospel until you get to the end of the earth. It's to be challenged and motivated to continue what the apostles started in the book of Acts. The rest of the believers carried it out until the end of Acts, but God isn't done yet. He still wants the gospel of the kingdom to go to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So we need to be challenged. We need to be motivated. We need to understand the authority that God has given us to go out and to carry the name and the good news of Jesus Christ. Another goal, the sixth goal that I have for us doing this study is, and you're going to see this often in the book of Acts, if we want revival, if we want signs and wonders, if we want to see souls saved, Great, that's wonderful, but get ready also for another ingredient, persecution. It always comes along with revival. So, what we're going to see in the book of Acts is a church that triumphed in the face of persecution. Oh, they were locked up in jail, they were beaten, they saw their own members put to death, and they still kept going forward, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. So, a sixth goal is for us to get that boldness in us and to understand we're going to triumph no matter what comes. The church is going to triumph even in the face of persecution. That's what you'll see from cover to cover in the book of Acts. And then, finally... A seventh goal, and this has already started working on me, I hope it works on you too, it's to stir your heart to pray, maybe even to fast and pray. And as you're reading through the book of Acts, hopefully a prayer starts to bubble up in your own heart. Lord, where is this church? Where are these apostles? Where is this kind of power and authority that they had in the early church? Get stirred up to pray like they prayed. Lord, stretch forth your hand to heal the sick, to perform mighty signs and wonders in the name of Jesus Christ, and grant your servants boldness in the face of persecution to keep preaching your word. <clears throat> Lord, restore our modern church to the apostolic foundation, power, and authority that we're going to see in the book of Acts. It's not that God has changed. God hasn't gone anywhere. The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. We have the same spirit, the same power, the same gifts they had in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and wherever else these apostles and believers went. Nothing's changed 
except for possibly us. We need to get stirred up. We need to get plugged in again to that fire, to that power, and that authority. And I'm reminded of Elisha. After Elijah went up to heaven in a chariot of fire, and he left his mantle behind, as Elisha picked up that mantle and struck the waters of the Jordan, he said, Where now is the Lord God of Elijah? Well, you can change that prayer a little bit. Where is the God of Acts? Where is the God of Peter and James and Paul? Where is this Acts church? And I think if enough of us get stirred up, we're going we're gonna to see a manifestation of the very same church we're studying about in the book of Acts. A church where everybody was in awe and wonder God was moving so powerfully. Now, I'm not saying God's not doing anything. I'm not saying we're not seeing some of these things in our churches. But surely, 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 there's room for improvement. And as for this voice, I want more. I'm not satisfied. I see things in the book of Acts that I want in my own life, in my own ministry, and I'm sure you want them too. So the final goal here is to stir us up to seek God. Fast, pray, cry out to God. Lord, restore apostles to the church. Restore real prophets to the church. Raise up ministries like Philip and Stephen, who were just table waiters. That's how they started out, waiting on tables. But the Holy Ghost came on them in power, and they started preaching and casting out devils, and multitudes were brought to Christ through them. Lord, restore this modern church to full apostolic power and authority. Stir up the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let them all be manifested as they were in the book of Acts. The dead being raised. Oh yeah, we'll find that in the book of Acts. The dead were raised. Mighty signs and wonders. And, sorry to interject this, some drop dead in the church too. We'll come to that in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. The power of God worked in many amazing ways in the early church. If you lied, if you brought hypocrisy and deception with you to church, you were gambling because Ananias and Sapphira, they lost the bet. They dropped dead in the church because they thought they could fool the Holy Spirit and the elders, the leaders of the church. So, to bring this to a close, and we're going to take a break next week because Shireen and I will be ministering in Puerto Rico for eight days, but um, two weeks from tonight we'll be right back to start off in Acts chapter 2, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. This is when it all started. This is when the church was born. This is when we really begin to see the Holy Spirit in action. So, in coming weeks, 
and I'm not even putting a timeline on this. I don't know how long it's going to take us. As long as it takes, we're going right through the whole book of Acts. We're going to break it down into sections. It just seemed to work nicely. Twelve is the number of the apostles, so I've broken it down into twelve parts. So this is going to be a twelve-part series, and the outline is given here in your notes. Part one is just an introduction. Part two, we'll look at chapter one, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Part three, we'll look at chapter two, the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. Part four, we're still in Jerusalem, looking at the growth of the Jerusalem church in chapters three to five. That would also involve some of their first persecution. Part five, the choosing of the seven deacons, Stephen and Philip were two of them, and the martyrdom of Stephen. Part six, we'll see where they finally launch out from Jerusalem into phase two, Judea and Samaria, chapters eight and nine. Part seven, we'll look at the beginning of the Gentile church in chapters 10 to 12. And then parts 8, 9, and 10, we'll look at Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys. Part 11, we'll look at Paul's arrest, his trials, and his voyage to Rome. And as I mentioned, the book of Acts ends with him under house arrest in Rome. And then part 12, we'll use to sort of tie it all together and bring the entire study to a conclusion. Again, I hope you're hearing my heart. I don't want this just to be a Bible study where we fill our heads with knowledge. I am earnestly praying that we get stirred up as a church, that we get filled with the Holy Spirit and we start to move out in the power of God, carrying the name of Jesus to our job, to our school, to our neighbors, to our family members, to the ends of the earth. And get ready because there will be opposition. There will be persecution. But God will give us the strength to overcome and to triumph in the face of that persecution. Let's close in prayer tonight as we finish this first part. Father God, in the name of Jesus, you're interested in these days in one thing. It's building and completing your church. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But that building only began in the book of Acts with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray as we study the book of Acts, you would stir us up by your Holy Spirit. Give us boldness to speak your word, take away fear, take away shyness, give us Holy Ghost boldness to stand up for the name of Jesus, to spread the good news of Jesus to the four corners of the earth. 
Lord, build your church. Make it a glorious church. A spirit-filled, on-fire church. God, restore apostolic teaching to the church. Restore apostolic authority in the church. God, so much of our churches now, it's just, uh, we'll pick and choose, we'll do what we think is right. God, we want an apostolic church where the Holy Spirit is in charge, where Jesus Christ is the head, and He establishes the ministries and the government of the church. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray for anyone listening to this message tonight that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would speak in tongues with the first evidence, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit would be manifested in every single listener because you are no respecter of persons. You want the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to be in every one of our lives. Stir up the gifts of the Spirit in our churches. Lord, we don't want a, a ho-hum human church. We want a supernatural, Spirit-filled church where you are present in power and glory. Father, we commit ourselves into your hands. Continue to speak to us as we study your word. Continue to stir us up and move us out. God, you basically left the apostles with one command. Go. Go into all the world. And Lord, you're giving us the same command. Get filled Get ready and go. Lord, I pray that we can impact souls, family members, co-workers, communities, wherever you send us. Open up doors, open up hearts, create opportunities for the expansion of the gospel and the growth of the church. We praise you, we glorify you, we submit to you, we commit our lives to you, we surrender ourselves fully to your plans and purposes now. Bless each and every one, keep us as the apple of your eye, until Jesus returns in glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.